Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I hold no degrees in the topics I talk about. Always be skeptical. And if you find that I was wrong about something, please let me know. You can do that at livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. Please also be aware of the fact that I do swear and I don't bleep anything out. So listener discretion is advised. and this is episode 94 of Living Through Extinction, a short-to-the-point podcast with science and skepticism, environment and wildlife, and stuff I find cool that I want to learn more about. Except for today. For this first episode of October, in honor of LGBT History Month, there are only two segments. Both are trans-related, so if you are a snowflake bigot who can't handle hearing the truth about people who are different from you, you may as well turn this off now. If you have joined me before, then thank you so much for returning. I wish I knew how to express just how much I appreciate you. If this is your first episode of Living Through Extinction, then welcome! This episode is a bit different from the usual, but I hope you still find it both fun and informative. Though I'm afraid I am probably going to butcher some pronunciations. Trans people have always existed. These statements that this is something new are erasing actual people from history. Which is interesting, as it comes from the same people who whined that removing statues was erasing history. I've had people comment on my videos that transness and any science behind it is less than 20 years old. The terms we use today are different, and we do have more scientific proof these days thanks to brain scanning studies and the like. But no, transness is not new. It's literally existed as long as humans have, in all centuries, in all nations, because it's a human quality. And we are all human. Just because the trans people in your life weren't dumb enough to come out to a bigot like you, does not mean they weren't there all along. The term transgender, which we use today, did not come around until the 1960s. That doesn't mean there were not people who were gender non-conforming. It just means that we didn't have this particular term for it yet. There have always been people who did not feel like they fell into the binary view of gender. Transgender people were described by Hippocrates and Herodotus. Ancient Greece had the galley from 200 BCE to 300 CE. The galley were assigned male at birth, but wore woman's clothing, referred to themselves as women, and some even castrated themselves. 3,500 years ago, in the Rig Veda, an Indian religious text, there are men with wombs and breasts among the images. Indian texts from 3,000 years ago document third gender people called the Hijara. 2,000 years ago, in the Ramayana, Rama asked men and women not to follow him, and all of the Hijaras stayed, and he blessed them. The Buddhist Tipitaka from 2100 years ago documents four gender categories. Female, male, pandaka, and ubitobianjanaka. It also shows Buddha as being tolerant of monks transitioning to nuns. The Mahabharata, another Indian book from two to 3,000 years ago, includes the story of a trans man named Shikandi. Indonesia has a third gender called Warya, and an estimated 7 million of the 240 to 260 million population are Warya. 
That's about 3%. Scripture in Thailand from 2100 years ago documented third and fourth genders. There is archaeological evidence that there were trans or third gender people in California 2500 years ago, and that those rates were similar to what we see in North America today. Also in North America, there's archaeological and ethnographic evidence that third gender categories may go back to the first Asian and Siberian migrations to our land over 10,000 years ago. The Evan Bowen, an ethical treatise composed by Kaloimus ben Kaloimus in 1322, contains a poem which is the story of a man who curses his male body, calling his penis a defect and desperately wishing he'd been created as a woman. To us today, this is obvious gender dysphoria. In 1629, a person who went by both Thomas Hall and Thomasine Hall was ordered by the courts to wear gender-specific clothing. They claimed to have been born both as a man and as a woman, and at different times they took on the recognized roles and clothing of each. Until forced to stop, of course. European missionary Joseph-Francois Lafitau lived among the Iroquois from 1711 to 1717. He reported observations of, quote, Women with many courage who prided themselves upon the profession of warrior to become men alone, as well as, quote, men cowardly enough to live as women, unquote. Asshole. The Europeans created their own word for these indigenous non-gender conforming people. It was berdaches, which indigenous people considered a slur. So they eventually came up with their own English term for their gender non-conforming individuals in 1990 to spirit. Of course, during colonization, European beliefs were not just imposed, but enforced on First Nations people. An article by Johann Baptist Frederick in 1829 refers to it as a female sickness when speaking of transgender women, and made comparisons with other observed cases from various cultures. Albert D.J. Cashier was born Jenny Hodgers in 1843. He lived as a man and enjoyed the privileges of a man, including voting. He served a three-year term in the army, fighting over 40 battles against the Confederate army. He received a military pension for his service and managed to keep his secret until 1913, when he ended up with dementia. His story ended sadly, I'm afraid. The state hospital he was in discovered he'd been born female when they bathed him. And then he was forced to wear woman's clothing for the first time since early childhood. Something he had never become accustomed to. He died from a fall after tripping over one of those skirts that he had been forced to wear. Mother fucker. Sarah Emma Edmonds became a male field nurse in the Union Army named Frank Thompson. When he contracted malaria, he abandoned his post in order to check into a private hospital so the army would not find out his secret. When he was recovering, he saw wanted posters for himself as Frank Thompson. The army had charged him with desertion, a crime punishable by execution at the time. Because of these unfortunate events, Frank was forced to stay female in order to stay safe. Anthropologists and colonial accounts both document the acceptance of third gender categories in pre-Columbian Mexican communities. Third genders were common in native cultures in Central and South America, such as the Aztecs and the Mayans. The Zapotec people had a name for them. They were referred to as muxes, and defined as people who dress, behave, and perform work otherwise associated with the other gender. 
A study in the 70s showed that 6% of males among the Zapotec male were muxes, actually a much higher percentage than we are aware of in our nations today. Those who came before the Inca and the Moca revered third gender people. Their societies were accepting of masculine and feminine ambiguity. In 1776, a person named Jemima Wilkinson referred to themselves as genderless and dressed androgynously. They were a preacher who asked their followers to not use their birth name or gendered pronouns throughout their over 40 years in that position. In 1791, a planter who had been raised as a boy led the Southern Haiti uprising under the name Romaine the Prophetess. Romaine the Prophetess dressed in women's clothing and spoke of having a female spirit. During the Mexican Revolution, born female Amelo Robles Avila lived as a man from the age of 24 until his death. He not only dressed and was treated as a man, but he was also respected as a capable leader and promoted to colonel. While mostly accepted by his family, by society, and by the Mexican government, he was attacked by two men one day who were the equivalent of mega people today, and they attempted to remove his clothes and reveal his anatomy. He ended up killing both of them. Good for him. Latin America had their first sexual reassignment surgery in Chile in 1973, just months before a new dictatorship came in and put policies in place to demonize her and her treatment. In the late 1800s, the Lamana were Native Americans who were male-bodied but took on the social and ceremonial roles of women. One of their people, Wawa, was a cultural ambassador for Native Americans with President Grover Cleveland. Even medieval Christians acknowledged transgender and gender nonconforming individuals. They saw it as an expression of God's plan, very unlike today's American Christian nationalism. Trans people were even canonized in the early days of Christianity. They were considered to be extraordinarily blessed by God. Marina the monk was a trans person in the clergy around the 7th century. Assigned female at birth, he was expelled from the monastery when a woman accused him of impregnating her. Rather than expose his body to clear his name, he accepted her accusation and became a father to the child. In later years, he was allowed to return to the monastery with his son. He did so well at keeping a secret that it was not discovered until after his death. He was named a saint by both the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches after his death, after his secret was known. They were fine with it. There are trans ideas in religious writings throughout the Middle Ages. It wasn't until the 13th century that their views began to change. From here, they spiraled down to the point of insisting that all people must fit neatly into their binary. Even intersex people. Intersex people were told to choose which sex organ they are going to perform with and present as per that choice. So fucked up. In the United States, people lived as the opposite gender in the early years of the Republic. Joseph Lobdell was assigned female when born in 1829. He lived as a man for 60 years and married a woman. Charlie Parkhurst, also assigned female at birth, lived his professional life as a male stagecoach driver. Over 200 assigned female at birth individuals are known to have fought in the Civil War. They wore men's clothing, fought as soldiers, and lived the rest of their lives as men. Former slave Frances Thompson was arrested for living as a woman in 1876. In 1895, a club called the Circle Hermaphroditos was organized in New York. At the time, the term they called themselves was androgens. 
One such self-described androgen was Jenny June, born in 1874, who wrote the autobiography of an androgen in 1918. Trans activism 100 years ago, folks. Don't let your racist cousin tell you different. American jazz musician and band leader Billy Tipton was assigned female when born in 1914, but lived as a man from the 1940s until his death. Fully accepted by her Oxnard, California community, socialite and chef Lucy Hicks Anderson began insisting she was a girl as a young child. She was awesomely supported by her family and doctors, and so had a lovely life, and was actually a popular hostess of dinners and parties from the 1920s to the 1940s. The first sex change to be widely publicized was Christine Jorgensen in 1952. She was open about her sex reassignment surgery. In the early 1950s, we started to see more organizations, publications, and clubs forming for support. The battle for trans rights in the public eye has been going on as long as the battle for gay rights in the public eye. But we didn't start to see political progress here in Canada until the 2000s. It began in 2002, when sexual orientation and gender identity were added to the Northwest Territories Human Rights Act. In May of 2012, Canadian Jenna Talakova became the first trans woman to compete in a Miss Universe pageant. In June 2012, gender identity and expression were added to the Ontario Human Rights Code, and gender identity was added to the Manitoba Human Rights Code. In December 2012, Nova Scotia added gender identity and expression to the list of actions protected from harassment in their Human Rights Act. In March of 2013, Bill C-275 finally passed, officially including trans people in Canada, in human rights protections. Though the first Canadian to have affirming surgery was Diana Boileau in 1970 in Toronto, Ontario. Just because the protections didn't exist for them doesn't mean they weren't there because they always were. However, in 2015, this bill was amended to make exceptions for prisons, crisis centers, and public washrooms. There was no reason for this amendment. It was immediately criticized as transphobic. In December 2015, our first openly transgendered judge was appointed to the Provincial Court of Manitoba. In 2016, gender identity and expression were added to the Quebec Charter of Rights and Freedoms. In August 2017, Canadians won the right to mark passports with an X rather than male or female. X being non-binary, of course. In January 2018, we had our first trans woman come out in sports. Jessica Platt played in the Canadian Women's Hockey League. And now, today, we're going back in time to an era where bigotry is once again accepted. Trans children are being pushed back into the closet with laws in both the United States and Canada forcing teachers to out them to their parents. For those from affirming families, it'll probably be all right. But not all families are affirming. Some are fucking abusive, and being outed to them could put a child in serious danger, which means that child will now have nobody to go to. They are likely to stay closeted longer, and that leads to drastically increased numbers of child suicide rates. That is the reality of the supposed parents' rights laws. None of this is new. When the bigots say, I never knew no transgenders, remind them that, yes, they did, and probably do. Remind them that activism for transgender individuals has been going on in the U.S. for over a century. Remind them of the science being done on transgender people in Germany before Hitler tore their establishment apart. Remind them that as science gets more progressed, the realities of what is experienced by transgender people have been confirmed 
over and over again. We do have new terms and more scientific evidence today because of advances in technology. Whatever names they went by in whatever society, in whatever age of time, they were there. Continuing with transgender history, this next segment is about the beautiful, brave icon, Marsha Payetnomine Johnson, more commonly known as Marsha P. Johnson. Marsha was born August 24, 1945, in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Assigned male at birth, she was raised in an African-American working-class family with six siblings. The family was raised religious, and Marcia continued to be a practicing Christian her entire life. Marcia first started expressing herself when she was five years old. She was drawn to and wanted to wear clothes generally worn by little girls. When she graduated high school, she packed a bag of clothes and $15 and headed for New York City. Here, she was able to begin wearing her preferred clothes, using her preferred pronouns, and she adopted the name Marcia P. Johnson. Marcia continued to have a relationship with her family back home, but never did go back to live. Living in New York had some major challenges for someone like her, though. The state had pretty much criminalized her existence. This made obtaining employment as her authentic self impossible. So, like many of the LGBT community at the time, and today, she became a sex worker. As a sex worker, Marcia was abused by clients and arrested by the police. She also had no permanent home. She slept on couches, in hotels, in restaurants, or in movie theaters. Despite all of these hard times, she was known by all to always be smiling and described by friends as having a joyous personality. She was able to make some additional income for a time, waiting tables and performing drag shows. It was after this that she became more known as a drag queen. Her outfits were made by her with the use of thrift store and garbage finds, and she was very commonly seen with a circle of flowers on her head. At 17, Marcia met her lifelong friend and cohort, Sylvia Rivera, in New York. She was a Puerto Rican transgender girl, and I mean girl, she was only 11 years old at the time. They became very close very quickly, and Sylvia referred to Marcia as being like a mother to her, a mother who encouraged her to love herself and her identity. Marcia began activism with the Stonewall Riots. She and Sylvia led all sorts of protests after that day, but she became frustrated watching the gay liberation movement become more and more white, middle class, and cisgender. That's when her focus started to move more specifically to transphobia and the transgender community. In 1970, Marcia and Sylvia founded STAR, the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries. This organization was dedicated to sheltering transgender youth who had been kicked out of their homes by their parents for being honest about who they are. They wanted a place where these trans youth could stay and feel safe. When they first started, they were using the back of a thought-to-be-abandoned truck in Greenwich Village. Did you notice I said thought-to-be-abandoned? Yeah, one day it started driving away, so they all had to jump out. That's when Marcia and Sylvia found and began renting a run-down building with no electricity. Unfortunately, they were only able to come up with the rent for eight months, after which they were kicked out. Yes, they were being charged rent for a place with no electricity. Gay activism continued to become more and more exclusive, until organizers of the Gay Pride Parade banned Star from marching with them. They showed up and they marched anyway, though. Good for them. Marsha P. Johnson said that it was her ambition to see transgender and gay people liberated, free, and with the same rights as everyone else. Marsha was diagnosed with HIV in 1990, but it wasn't the disease that killed her. Of course, 
this passionate, outspoken minority lost her life to the hateful. She was 46 years old when some bigot murdered her in 1992. In 2019, New York City announced Marcia and Sylvia would be the subject of a monument called She Built New York City. In 2020, New York State named a waterfront park in Brooklyn after her. Today, the Marsha P. Johnson Institute advocates for the rights of black trans people in her name, and she continues to be one of the most recognized and admired advocates in LGBT history. She would be so sad to see the damage being done to trans youth in the name of bigotry in 2023. Shame on those of you who do not speak up when you see it. Shame on those of you who spread the lies about this already super oppressed demographic of human beings. Allowing this bigotry to go unchecked is how we got to this horrific point in our history. Shame on you if you vote for these anti-science, lying parties who want nothing more but to make life miserable for people who are different from them. There will not be a positive today as nothing's getting better for trans people right now. It was for a while, but that seems to have been destroyed by conservative politicians and continues to get worse every day. And that's all I have for today. Sorry, I'm not trying to cheer you up today with any positives. Thank you for joining me. May your health and sanity continue to be replenished daily, particularly as our democracies begin to fall apart. My eternal gratitude goes out to the following people. Jason Martin for helping me get started on this project nearly four years ago. I wouldn't be doing this right now if not for him. Kathy Rayner for her musical contribution on the violin. Paul Palmer for his musical contribution on the guitar. He can be found at WPG Suitcase Drummer on Instagram. Dustin Harder for composing and recording the intro and outro for the show. You can find him on Instagram at Prairie Soul Music. And finally, thank you to my household for putting up with me. Love y'all lots. I hope you will choose to join me again in two weeks for episode 95 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoy Living Through Extinction and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to subscribe and rate and to comment and like positive comments on your favorite podcast player, or you can help out by following, liking, and sharing on all the social medias. The show can be found under Living Through Extinction on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, YouTube, Pinterest, and TikTok, and under LTE Pod on Twitter and Hive. There's also a Patreon at patreon.com slash livingthroughextinction. There you can earn stickers, pins, masks, and more, as well as help me to plant some trees. If you have any comments, corrections, questions, or suggestions, please email them to livingthroughextinction at gmail.com or message me through one of the social medias. <laughs>